Saving money on protecting your garden. Now at Menards. Messina's Animal Stopper is a liquid repellent that prevents pesky animals from damaging your garden. Available in a convenient, ready-to-use bottle. It lasts for up to 30 days, regardless of weather and watering. Save big money on Messina's Animal Stopper at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals happening now. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These. This week, we're going to talk about friendship in a very literal way. Eva Hagberg was an overachieving cynic, a recovering addict and alcoholic whose relationships were defined by extremes. She was either deeply in love or wanted to be alone. She didn't want friends, and she didn't know how to be a friend. And then she got very sick more than once, and had to learn, as the title of her book puts it, how to be loved. It is, again, according to the title, a memoir of life-saving friendship. It is now in paperback, and I have bought six copies of it for various friends who are struggling with illness in one form or another. Who among us, right? It is really not too far away from an instruction manual. My conversation with her was recorded in August... It is coming right up. Eva, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. So I'm excited to have you on, and I want to give listeners a little taste of your book. And you have an excerpt you can read for us? I do, I do. So this is from the very beginning of the book, and this is when I finally get to know Allison, uh, who I hope that we all grow to love later. Then finally, things started to change, not because of me, but because of her. An early evening in November, I was walking down College Avenue toward the Rockridge BART station. I heard a, hey, Eva. To my left, I saw a green Honda, a car I would later drive to the hospital to take her to the oncologist who would tell her she was really dying this time. A make and model of car I would years later see sometimes on the streets of Berkeley and look for her and forget that she was dead, but for now, It was just Allison alive with Sadie on a blanket in the front seat. Sadie is a dog, by the way. Get in. I got in putting Sadie on my lap, but not before putting on the social armature of dealing with an old and sick person. I prepared to be polite, respectful. I prepared myself for talking about general topics, but instead I looked at her and saw her face and her eyes and her tiny mouth from which so many words had poured and from which a few more came and a tightness in my chest uncoiled just a millimeter. Where are you headed? A party in the city with this guy. It's his birthday. And then I'm worried I'm going to sleep with him. Is that likely? I told Allison how I'd met Matt two years earlier on the airport in line for a delayed flight headed from New York to Heathrow, where we'd started talking and then exchanged emails and decided to hang out in London. How we'd had a mini fling, which was relevant because I was in the middle of switching from one relationship to another, adding a third person to the mix because of course you did, she interrupted. I continued on saying I wanted to feel alive, she interrupted again. Now is the time for her to say something wise. I waited for her to tell me to live my best life now and not give my precious gift away. To tell me that having sex with someone I wasn't dating was bad behavior, was something I should be doing. Everyone else in my life was advising me to change my ways. The thing is, It doesn't matter if you fuck him or not. You're still you, she said. We are not saints. Sure, we weren't saints, but we were always trying to improve, right? Then it was 7.30, and I had to leave, had to make it to the group dinner at the hot new restaurant. And so I reached across the car to do what I'd always seen everyone do with Allison. Touch her, hold her, squeeze her shoulder in her arm. I didn't do it because I wanted connection, but because it felt like the next right thing to do to maintain kindness, to acknowledge her. I'd seen people touch her like that in meetings and would learn later about the particular physical tourism of illness, the way in which we begin to sanctify those who are closer to death than we believe we are. Later, I would be touched in the way that she was, touristed in the way she was. But that was later, after I got sick, after I joined her kingdom. That was lovely. Thank you. Oh, it's so nice. To, I haven't read that. I haven't read my book in 
over a year. So that was nice to revisit. I bet it was. Uh, there is a lot of, not surprisingly, love in your book. And that is a lovely um, preview of the relationship you wind up having with Allison. And it is Allison that is sort of the hero of the book almost, or at least she's the co-protagonist, because she is the person who teaches you how to be loved. Yeah, I really miss her. That's what you're hearing is you find out on the first page that she's going to die. So it's not a spoiler, but I've been thinking a lot about her recently and what she would think about my life now and what's happened. But yeah, she was so instrumental in, I think, modeling what it looked like to accept love as much as to give it. And the book is really about her. It is a love story, I would say. I was trying to think about if you could describe it in the in the tropes of so and so meets so and so. Um, part of me wants to say it's not girl meets boy or even girl meets girl and Allison. Part of me wants to say it's girl meets self. Do you think there's anything to that? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's a beautiful reflection, and that that is what happened, and. One of the things that Allison taught me was that my life wasn't an extensive self-improvement project, which I have thought that it is, you know, since the day that I was conscious. Um, she taught me that it's a self-knowledge and ultimately self-acceptance project. And there's this moment, maybe two-thirds of the way through, and she and I are driving to J. Crew, and I think I wanted to get on Tinder or something, but I never dated online and I was really nervous. And I said something like, well, you know, you know, I mean, you know me, like I can't, you know, I can't date. And, um, and I said, I have all these flaws and I really wanted her to say, oh my God, you're amazing. You know, you're perfect. You're great. Like anybody would be lucky to have you. And instead she was like, oh yeah, you're, yeah, you're very flawed. And just sort of listed all of my flaws, you know, which were these, these precious icons that I had thought I was keeping to myself buried in my internal mind closet. And to have her just list them and then say, I'm like that too. You're totally lovable. I mean, that was this extraordinary moment where I got to feel what it was like to look at myself clearly with all of my flaws and love myself. Um, and that's really, I mean, I think that's why I describe her sort of as a midwife in a way, is she was midwifing me into being the person that I wanted to be. It's not that she transformed me radically or even that. I mean, I think a lot about the way in which she was a foil. Um, so yeah, it is a love story with her, but you're right. It is also really a love story with myself. And God, I wish I could hang on to that profound self-acceptance, right? Because I don't wake up with it every day. <laughs> yes, if you figure out a way to bottle that, I would also really love to wake up with that every day. So people should know, uh, although Allison's a very important character and she has an arc in which, yes, she passes away. It would be one kind of book if it were about you and a friend who dies and that's how you learn to be loved. But that is actually not the whole story of this book. You have to go through a lot of other things to get to the place that you got to. So I had this relationship that was very difficult that has two paragraphs in the book that used to have a hundred pages. Thank God my editor. There was a sort of, um, my childhood was very um, sumptuous in many ways, but not emotionally. You can put it like that. So I sort of developed this like way of coping, which mostly meant checking out by drinking and doing a lot of cocaine and getting into a lot of trouble with men that I met in airports and other places. But when I was 30, I was in grad school. I was very concerned about grad school and my relationship. And then one day I fell down and I woke up and I felt a little strange. So I went to the hospital and a week later I had a brain MRI and this neurosurgeon said that I had a cyst behind my pituitary that had ruptured. And he was very concerned that the cyst was actually malignant. So what that means is brain cancer. So I went from being somebody who was very obsessed with my relationship to somebody who was facing what seemed to me to be a diagnosis of brain cancer at, I think, 31. 
30 or 31. Um, and I just had no idea how to hold this information at all. I mean, it was information that was so massive and so confusing and so surprising. And I'd always thought that I would skate through life. I mean, I sort of thought that I'd had my hard thing in a way. Like I thought that getting sober was my hard thing. And now I would just have easy things, which is such a bananas approach to life. But it's what I thought at the time. So I had this brain biopsy and it was mostly inconclusive. There were sort of two spots in my brain. And so I had three years of frequent tumor marker tests and brain MRIs. And my surgeon had said to me, you know, we just watch and then eventually the tumor pops, you know, so eventually this tumor is going to pop and then we're going to do treatment. And I remember talking to Allison and being like, I just want to do the treatment now. Like I would rather get whole brain radiation and 18 months of chemotherapy than deal with this uncertainty because the uncertainty felt utterly intolerable. And that's part of what sort of prepared me for this transformation was experiencing an intolerable emotional situation for months and then years. I want to jump on really, really quick to clarify something which is that these years that went by between your diagnosis and maybe maybe the tumor popping, right? It was a complete unknowable future for you. You were still living with the effects of having something wrong with your brain. Yes. Thank you for clarifying. Right. So I couldn't hydrate myself. So my pituitary was injured during surgery. And I went into severe hyponatremia and did almost die. And there's a scene where I describe my near-death experience, which was very calm, I have to say. I mean, I don't recommend a near-death experience, but it actually is a great benchmark, you know, because I get to remember how calm I was. And I was just like, wow, this is how I go. I go in the back of an ambulance looking at San Francisco. Okay. You know, I had a great run. Well, I read that scene, and I have to ask, my supposition was that you were still suffering the effects of having some kind of impact on your brain, and that's why you were calm. Yes. So what we know now is that I was going into a coma. Um, Right. Yeah. What we know now is that that calmness was completely chemical. It was because my, my cells were starting to burst all over my body from severe, severe hyponatremia. But it felt, you know, it felt real. I mean, so this is sort of a, an upside for us as we face our impending deaths, however they may come. It's like, even if it's chemical, it still feels really spiritual. Um, yeah, so I almost died. And then my pituitary was just injured. So I had to get IV saline two or three times a week. And I was constantly in the emergency room and constantly in urgent care and lying on the floor at meetings and getting up to take my orthostatic, you know, blood pressure. Um, and I was still in my PhD program and I actually took my qualifying exams a year after I had brain surgery. And I remember that moment I mean, that is my WASPy upbringing, right? Is like, oh, you do not. And I had to postpone them to get heart surgery, which is another random surprise thing. Um, But took my qualifying exams and passed. And one of the things that changed was my relationship to my achievement, because I remember thinking, I think they're just passing me out of pity. You know, like, they're probably just like this poor girl. She had brain surgery. She had heart surgery 10 months later. Like, let's just let her through. And my therapist helped me realize that that was actually very rude to my professors who were, you know, serious academics at UC Berkeley. Um, but it reminded me of how strong my imposter syndrome is, that it will basically find any possible entry point to diminish my accomplishments. Um, and something that I should also say is before I got sick, I was absolutely oriented towards accomplishment. Um, I would discard friends if it meant getting a byline in the New York Times. I would throw my family under the bus. I mean, I would just like, I just ran on sort of pure ambition. And then being sick with a brain thing felt to me like the most cosmic joke. And I remember praying to whatever entity I wasn't sure was there, that it just be my, you know, a limb. Like I was like, could you just give me 
something wrong with my knee because at least my knee isn't the one thing that I valued above everything else for my entire life, which is my brain and my ability to be smart. And I remember being in the hospital and talking to doctors and they just thought that I was this like very dim sort of well-meaning girl who was actually doing fine. And I was trying to explain to them, like, listen, I'm in a PhD program at UC Berkeley. Like I understand what a sandwich is. I just can't really describe a sandwich to you right now. Cause that seems really complicated because I had had a brain hemorrhage, you know, the cyst had ruptured into my brain. Um, and so that was really the hugely traumatic part was having to detach from this identity that I'd had for, at that point, 30 years. The book does have a redemptive arc. I mean, it still has that, but within that redemptive arc, I wanted to really explore what are these in-between spaces, right? What would it look like if I never thought I was going to get better? And for those three years, I didn't think I was going to get better. Like, I didn't think I was going to write a book about it and then have a conversation. I just thought, this is it. I'm done. Like, I'm fucked. Okay. Um, You know, what do I do now that I'm fucked? Oh, I hang out with Allison. I hang out with my other friends. I try to be a good friend. I want to talk a little more about that in-between time of living with the effects of having something go haywire in your brain and really just not knowing if you're going to be okay. And not being okay. In the, you, ha- you are in the midst of not being okay and having had this thing that you define yourself with, your brain taken away from you. But one of the things I, I felt like I learned from what you went through is that even in sickness, we can try to achieve. Like you wanted to be a good sick person, right? You wanted to be the sick in the right way. But there's no right or wrong way to be sick. I mean, I hear you say that and I, and I, want to say, yes, of course. And I can feel how strong the cultural sort of map is for being sick. I mean, yes, of course there is no right or wrong way. And yet I think these narratives persist of the brave warrior who battles what, you know, I remember when John McCain was diagnosed and everybody was like, he's a fighter. And he's like, he's 80 something and he has cancer. And also Allison was a fighter, quote unquote. You know, Um, I mean, yes, I completely agree with you. There's no right way to be sick. And it would never have occurred to me to even think about that question until I watched myself be a sick person. At that point, I don't know if if it qualified as chronic illness. I mean, I was chronically sick from a single event um, and it did eventually resolve. It had an endpoint that I could see. And the endpoint was either recovery or cancer and death. Um, but that pressure that I felt, I mean, I wondered a lot about where that came from because it felt really internal and it felt like I was manufacturing it with my special history and family of origin and all of that. But I think it was really like, I should I should be positive, you know? And I remember getting into a fight with somebody. I got into a lot of fights with people. I was not a graceful sick person, um, which I describe. Allison was really good at being graceful. People would say, oh, did you smoke? And she would say, well, you know, I did, but who knows if that's why I have cancer. And somebody asked me if I smoked, I was just like, fuck you. Um, You know, so, but somebody said when I was like, you know, I'm really tired. I can't do anything. And she said, well, at least you can walk. And I was like, well, I can't really walk. And she was like, at least you can. And so we got into the sort of at least game. And I realized that that's a huge proportion of how people comfort the sick is by saying at least. And I kept trying to at least myself, but it didn't work. And I had to learn in this time to feel grief. I think for really the first time in my life, I mean, I'd experienced sadness and frustration and disappointment, but like pure, absolute grief. I mean, it just nailed me. Um, And that grief felt so huge and it felt like I couldn't share it with anyone. And the person who could understand that grief was Allison. And so I was living with this grief, not only of my physical symptoms, which actually didn't cause me that much, but really 
that my life was not turning out the way that I had thought it would and had planned for and had done kind of, since I got sober, everything right for, I mean, there was this sense that I had of like, but I've been doing everything right, you know, which is of course such a privileged position. And I see now how misguided that is. Um, I don't know if this really answers what you were bringing up, but just what it makes me think of. Like I'm beginning to suspect in my own journey, reading yours, uh, reading other people's, that a real key lesson of spiritual growth is that there is no one right thing. There are no directions. And there's no one that's going to ever give you a grade. I look for those people to give me a grade all the time. Like I still, and that's one of the weird things about writing this book and then not being in the process of writing it anymore is like some of the lessons that felt like I would never, ever, ever forget them. I've forgotten. Um, but that need for validation. I mean, I think that's more universal, you know, I think I know a lot of people that aren't alcoholics that have this like absolute insatiable drive for validation and permission. I think permission is such a big thing. Um, and I'm always looking to people, you know, I always want to be like, Hey, do you think this is a, do you think this is reasonable? Um, and where I am now is like this process of learning to trust myself, which is so hard. And I'm 38. I mean, I feel like that's an adult ass age, you know, I should be like, this is who I am. I know it. And sometimes I just feel like this amorphous, like sponge slime mold. I'm reading this great book about mushrooms. So thinking a lot about slime mold. Fascinating. Fascinating. Oh, honey, I'm 47 and I'm still figuring it out. So like... It is, again, I don't know how normal people survive life, people who don't have programs to turn to or some kind of spiritual existence to look at, because that's the only way that I can keep learning the kinds of lessons you're talking about, that continual reminder of, like, I don't have to be anything. I really don't have to be anything. I can lose everything outside myself and I will still be myself. Because, like you said, it is an almost universal thing to define ourselves by our achievements because, as they say on You're Wrong About, it was capitalism all along, right? Like, we are divided and graded and expected to perform in a way that our excess labor gets commodified. <laughs> and that's the only way that we matter. So, yeah, how do you pull away from that? Um, unfortunately, I think one of the things that I, I know from talking to a lot of people, I feel like it's true. One of the only ways you break out of that terrible, painful hamster wheel is going through a lot of pain. So I had this thought recently because I'm super in love. And so I'm like, let's have a baby, which is a normal thing to do when you're newly in love with someone. and um. And then I got into, I got into this whole thing and I was like, well, wait, if I have a baby, I'm going to be out of the workforce for two years. You know, I don't want to lose. I just had this like entire, like something else took over my brain for a day or two. I got really resentful at my partner for the unconceived baby and how much it's taking me out of the workforce. Um, I got mad at him because he's a man and doesn't understand, you know, what's going to happen to me. And I was really just like, high on my own supply of resentment um, for this imagined non-happening future. And then I just thought like, wait, Eva, you don't care about that stuff anymore. Like you actually don't care. Like if you're supposed to have a baby and spend two to five years hanging out with the baby, that's probably because that's what you actually want to do. Um, you know, because I am old enough now to be able to, or I hope, you know, old enough or experienced enough to be like, yeah, I'm actually into this. I'm going to do it. Um, but it was sort of this astonishing moment of remembering everything that I had written and everything that I had learned. But it is so, so hard. And even now when I have to rest, I mean, I feel guilty and my friends feel guilty. And I love being friends with people that have also gone through a lot of pain um, because we're able to understand that a lot of our resistance comes from a place of trauma and trying to compensate for something like I didn't become the sort of narcissistic, verging on sociopathic overachiever 
by accident. I mean, I became that way because I thought that was the way that I was going to be safe and get love. And, you know, microcosmically, that's what my family taught me. And macrocosmically, that's what, like you just said, capitalism taught me, you know, growing up in the U.S. mostly. Um, And so the great pain of facing my death at 31 and losing Allison, who I loved so deeply at 30, whatever, 35, 36, Um, I mean, those experiences just, they broke my life into two pieces, which was before I lost my innocence and after. And a lot of the grief that I experienced was about losing that innocence. And a friend of mine who's really sick and I talk about that, that that's really our grief is that we don't get to go through life being like, yeah, everything is probably going to work out. Um, And I have a contingency plan for everything. I mean, I was talking to my boyfriend about like what I was going to do. I mean, you know, I I had this like imaginary escape plan worked out and he was like, it makes me sort of sad that you have this elaborate escape plan. And finally I was like, oh, this is, this is trauma. This is because I wasn't prepared for my brain to explode. Like I was caught off guard. So since then I've just tried to make contingency plans to keep myself safe. Um, But what's amazing there's this concept of post-traumatic growth, which I really love, which is like PTSD that you really deal with and it can turn into growth. Um, So now it's like my ability to only be resentful at this imaginary baby for one and a half days instead of 18 years, um, I think is, is because of the pain that I've experienced and the way in which I've been able to survive all of that pain. And I was talking to a friend about you know, various fears that I have. And she was like, all of your fears are of pain. Ultimately, everything that you fear is pain. And she's like, I've known you for eight years. You've experienced a lot of pain and you're okay. And that feels to me like such an extraordinary gift. And part of why I wanted to write the book was, I mean, one literary ambition. Two was like, here's the permission that I can sometimes on a good day give myself because of how close to the edge I went and how far away from sort of normal life I went. Um, And here's what I learned when I was there. You know, I really learned a lot of stuff and I'm going to try and bring it back. And maybe you don't have to have an exploding brain cyst. You can just read my book and then maybe feel a little bit like just gentler, you can feel a little bit kinder towards yourself, or you can forgive yourself for being ungraceful in a moment or, you know, whatever it is. Um, But I did sort of want to show like so much of how we're taught to deal with pain or grief or ambition or illness is, is really all comes back to capitalism, right? It's just rooted in the feeling. We will jump in right now to take a quick ad break. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Brooklinen. Now, I have a whole like morning thing. I I won't go into detail. It involves getting up very early and meditating and doing other healthy things that I feel self-conscious about. They're so healthy. I do not make the bed first thing because my husband is um, not a morning person. So I let him sleep. But I do make the bed, and I actually enjoy making the bed because there's something about resetting the day, even if it's at noon, with those crisp, clean sheets fluffing out the comforter. It's like, you know what? My morning, morning may not have gone great for some reason, but now it's morning too. It's a bonus morning. And I get to make the bed with Brooklyn and Sheets which are incredibly comfortable. One of the hints here in the reading is tell your listeners how you enjoy getting into bed even more. And I didn't think it was possible for me to enjoy getting into bed even more than I already did because I love bed. But these um, sateen sheets from Brooklinen are like silk, but you don't worry about messing it up and it doesn't wrinkle as easily. They're really, really great. I love them in white. They come in all kinds of colors. Also, other finishes. There's classic percal, which is cool and crisp with a timeless matte finish. There's heathered cashmere made for sweater weather and keeping you comfy and cozy. They're the perfect place to start making your mornings great or your bonus morning great. Brooklinen is so confident in their product that all of their bedding comes with a lifetime warranty. 
Get 10% off your first order and free shipping when you use the promo code WFLT only at brooklinen.com. Brooklinen, everything you need to live your most comfortable life. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Fast Growing Trees. When is the perfect time to plant trees and shrubs? Big box stores will tell you anytime or great question, go ask the other guy. But the best time to plant is actually fall, which means now is the time to go to fastgrowingtrees.com. Skip the big box stores and go to fastgrowingtrees.com. It is the world's largest online nursery. No more waiting in lines, messy cars, and digging through lackluster selection. Just go to fastgrowingtrees.com and choose from thousands of varieties of trees, shrubs, and plants expertly curated to thrive in your area and delivered to your door in one or two days. Now, if you are an apartment dweller like me, this may sound like it's not for you. It is for you because my husband and I, we love plants and we have plants in our house and on our balcony. And the worst part of doing it is going to the big box store and like getting that stuff home, taking it up the elevator. We make a mess every time. It's always like a big to do. With fast-growing trees, they just deliver it to your door. And are you not sure what kind of tree you want for your patio or balcony or inside your apartment? Go to the website, and they have all these different categories that will answer basically almost any question you have. There's patio, air purifying houseplants, low-light houseplants, pet-friendly houseplants, carefree houseplants, and houseplants that stay small. So I guess if you're living in, you know, a studio or something fastgrowingtrees.com. There is a better way to buy trees, shrubs, and plants for your home and yard, fastgrowingtrees.com. Fall is planting season. Don't let anyone tell you different. Join over 1 million satisfied gardeners at fastgrowingtrees.com. Plus, the 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee means your plants will arrive happy, healthy, and ready for planting. Now through November 15th, go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash friends for 10% off. That's 10% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash friends, fastgrowingtrees.com slash friends. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Magic Spoon. I'm going to really dig into this concept of bonus morning, like the extra morning you deserve because your first morning wasn't so great. You can start it over by remaking the bed or making the bed or having a bowl of cereal, maybe a second bowl of cereal. Especially if it's your second bowl of cereal, it should be Magic Spoon. It has zero grams of sugar, 11 grams of protein, and only three net carbs in each serving. It comes in four flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and blueberry, and it tastes too good to be true. No sugar, all that protein, three net carbs. It is keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. I like the cocoa pretty much. That's, yeah, that's my favorite. Uh, My husband likes all the other ones, which is good, so he has a lot to choose from, and I get to have the cocoa all to myself. Go to magicspoon.com, WFLT, to grab a variety pack and try it today. Maybe you will also like all the different ones. And be sure to use our promo code WFLT at checkout to get free shipping. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. If you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash WFLT and use WFLT for free shipping. We thank Magic Spoon for sponsoring the podcast. Back to my conversation with Eva Hagberg. Speaking of pain and grief, I do want to return to Allison. She is such a key figure in the book. She is the, you know, figure in the book in many ways. One of the things that struck me about um, your way of writing about her death was that you insist it has no meaning. In a really, in a way that I found refreshing. That her death, as I, I think I'm quoting, wasn't narratively necessary. I mean, I remember thinking, like, I'm supposed to be experiencing something. You know, she died, and I felt like the world was on an incorrect axis. I could feel the absence of her weight on the planet, even though her body was still here. I mean, I remember walking up a hill in San Francisco and just thinking, like, something is very, very wrong. And then I kept searching for what her death could teach me. And then I realized it was just bogus. It was just a bogus, stupid thing that happened. 
I mean, writing her death scene was one of the hardest. I think that was the hardest scene in the book to write. And I had to do all sorts of weird tricks to get myself to write it. And when I was narrating the audiobook, I had to stop and cry because I was still so sad about it. Um, but I just wanted to try and express my anger and my confusion and my disorientation and my denial too. When I went to see a grief therapist and she said, well, you could join this group. And at the end, we make altars for those who have died. And I was like, well, that's going to be very embarrassing when Allison comes back and asks me about my altar. Like, I'm not going to make her an altar. You know, she would have that. And reminds me of Joan Didion keeping her husband's shoes right in the hallway because he's going to need them when he comes back. I mean, my grandmother died recently. And today I thought, oh, I should ask her what she wants when I go to the island, you know, or... I remember when I found out that she died, my first thought was like, oh, I got to email her and ask what it's like. There's sort of this immediate desire that I have to bring the person back for just like one more conversation about what it's going to be like, you know? And so we're never prepared. And I was also really interested in the book and in sort of foreshadowing her death pretty constantly. I mean, you hear it in the excerpt that I read, like I keep reminding the reader that she's going to die in the same way that I kept reminding myself that she was going to die, which I thought would sort of amortize the grief over years. I thought, well, I'll just parcel it out. And then when she really dies, I won't feel it. And then she really died and I was utterly destroyed. I loved that idea because I think that to tie things up in a neat bow is another way of conceding power to achievement to capitalism to the need to move on. Um, you know, my, my mom died actually early in my sobriety and, um, and I just have to keep having a relationship with her. Like I can't, I, I cannot live this life except by continuing to have that relationship. Like maybe that sounds crazy to some people. Um, I don't hear her, you know, like, it's not like I, I feel like she's a ghost or something. It's more just, that relationship isn't dead. It's not. I'm so sorry that she died. That seems bogus to me, too. Mm-hmm. My friend Lauren and I, Lauren, who's in the book, we have a thing about, like, have you considered writing to the manager about that? That doesn't seem right to me, you know? <laughs> but that's beautiful. And I was talking to a friend of mine whose mother died six years ago. No, sorry, 15 years ago. She's been sober for eight years and she found a letter that her mom had written and she was really, she just saw her mother in a totally different light. And I was talking to her and I was like, you know, you get to keep having a relationship with her. And she was sort of like, I don't, what do you mean? I was like, well, you know, in a spiritual sense, but I'm, yeah, of course you have a relationship with her. It's like the relationship keeps going. The other person just gives maybe a different kind of, feedback or involvement. I've been talking to Eva Hagberg, author of How to Be Loved, a memoir of life-saving friendship. And we'll be right back to that conversation in a second. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Made to Fail. A broken unemployment system in Florida, crowded elections in Wisconsin during a global pandemic, rampant political corruption in Georgia, These failures didn't have to happen. A new podcast, Made to Fail, connects the dots between these government failures and pulls back the curtain on the conservative policies that time and time again have failed the people they claim to protect. Made to Fail takes you state by state through the policies, programs, and systems that have let us down. You'll hear from the people and families who have suffered because of these failed policies and the experts who've been studying these issues every step of the way. Again, as it turns out, these failures weren't accidental at all. They're by design. And if we're going to find our way out of this crisis, we need to know how we got here. Get the full story. Download Made to Fail today wherever you get your podcasts. With Friends Like These is also brought to you by Rothy's. As summer turns to fall, Rothy's is here to make your day with comfortable, washable, sustainable products— 
Rothy's shoes are incredibly comfortable. They have zero break-in period thanks to their seamless knit design. And with many chic styles to choose from, Rothy's shoes are the perfect pair for any adventure. It is no surprise that Rothy's best-selling shoe, The Point in Black, has over 3,000 near-perfect reviews. The newest Rothy's edition is their first adjustable sneaker. The lace-up is out-of-this-world comfortable, and as with all their shoes, it is knit from thread made from repurposed plastic water bottles. I don't know if it's going to, you know, top the Chelsea boot that I really like. I also just don't like tying shoes. Rothy's is also making bags, which isn't even in this uh, ad that I'm supposed to read to you, but they look so cool. I am probably going to buy some. I always am ready for, like, that perfect bag that will solve all of my problems by giving me the perfect container for all of the... Well, you know, I used to carry around stuff. I guess I I don't carry around stuff anymore, but this would be an aspirational bag buy. It would be the bag for when I start carrying around more stuff. Anyway, they look really cool. Check out all the amazing bags and shoes available right now at rothys.com, W-F-L-T. That's rothys, R-O-T-H-Y-S, dot com, slash W-F-L-T, Style and sustainability meet to create your new favorites. Head to rothys.com slash WFLT today. With Friends Like These is brought to you by Stamps.com. As we slowly adjust to a new normal, we still need to be smart about how we do business. And luckily, there is Stamps.com to make things easier. Thousands of small business owners have discovered the benefits of Stamps.com in recent months. They've been able to keep their businesses running and avoid crowds at the post office all from their own computers. With Stamps.com, you can print postage on demand and avoid going to the post office and still support the post office. And you'll save money with discounted rates you cannot get at the post office. Stamps.com also offers UPS services with discounts of up to 62% and no residential surcharges. Stamps.com brings all the mailing and shipping services you need right to your computer in the comfort and safety of your own home. Whether you're a small business sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, or just working from home and need to mail stuff, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. Once your mail is ready, just leave it for your mail carrier, schedule a pickup, or drop it in a mailbox. It's that simple. And like I said, with Stamps.com, you get great discounts, five cents off of every stamp and up to 62% off USPS and UPS shipping rates. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, saving you time and money. Right now, my listeners get a free special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the podcast microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in friends. That's Stamps.com. Enter friends. And that's the last of the ads. Enjoy the show. People may scoff or roll their eyes or laugh at this idea of having a relationship with a dead person. Because I think we tend to think of loving relationships as something that comes out of uh, two people giving to each other, right? Like parody. You talk to the person and the person talks back to you. And of course, if someone has passed, they, they can't. That's actually not what a loving relationship is about. And I think you discover that in the book. A loving relationship is just about love. Yeah, there's this moment where Allison says to me, you know, you got to stop keeping score. Like, this is not about parity. Friendship is just people who love each other. And that changed everything for me. I mean, I didn't even realize that I'd been keeping score until she was like, "You, you need to stop with this. And so that was sort of a model that I had, you know, was like the way that I care for people is how they're going to care for me. And having Allison kind of release me from that was so incredible because I get to just receive as much as people want to give. And then I get to give as much as they want to receive and as much as I want to give. And it's never going to even out. I mean, there's friends that I feel like I give more to, and then I have friends who give more to me and Overall, what's important is that every need that I have gets met in some way, either by a person or by some, you know, I do believe that I have a higher power. Um, And I'm seeing that a lot in this relationship that I'm in now where 
my boyfriend is very influenced by Jung and by Eric from The Art of Loving, which is basically like love, loving is an act, you know, it's like continuous acts. Um, and so I've just been experiencing what it's like to think of love, not as this like mystical thing that exists over there that we gesture towards at some time, but it's me fucking vacuuming his house because he has a really busted rotator cuff. And doing my own internal work to not be like, I can't believe I am a woman vacuuming a man's house. Um, and it doesn't mean that he has to then vacuum my house, which was like an hour of a discussion with him. I was like, not, this is not a trick. This is not a protracted, now you have to vacuum my, you know, and I kept talking, I was like, just receive, receive the care that I'm showing you. And he was like, oh my God, this feels amazing to just receive it. And like, that's what Allison taught me, you know. And that brings us to a point about grace that I loved also. Uh, you experience grace for yourself and at least in that moment, at some point coming to the realization there's not a right or wrong way to be sick. But there's also a lovely place where you extend grace. And I'm paraphrasing, but I feel like you are able to say there's also not a right or wrong way to be of service or to love a sick person. I mean, I think what I found so extraordinary was the different ways in which people showed up. And once I stopped thinking about how they were failing and I started thinking about like, what is the gift that this person is giving me? I had such a richer and deeper experience of illness. Um, and I've, mostly been able to carry that into my non-sick life now um but yeah i mean i had friends that never gave me a ride to the hospital you know they were just like remember once i said i texted a group and i was like could somebody take me to the er and it was a wednesday and somebody was like yeah i'm free next tuesday i was like oh the e stands for you know emergency um so there were people that just sort of like failed the, you know, logistical barriers uh, to entry. But then there was this just extraordinary number of people that would just like make food and bring me food or they would just make jokes or they would talk to me about, I mean, and one friend, Allie, who would come with me to get IVs. And at this point, my veins were so shot because I'd had so many IVs. So placing an IV was really hard. And she would distract me by telling me what the Arab Spring actually was. And she would the nuances of Middle Eastern politics. And it was, it was just extraordinary. I mean, what a beautiful act of friendship that I would never have thought to ask for or um, delineate in some way. And that was sort of the beauty of the friendship that I was able to receive is when I stopped sort of marking the terms, you know, I stopped being like, well, I need a friend who does this. I was, I mean, I was sort of like, I'll take anyone who comes, you know, I'll take anyone. And I realized that everybody has something that they want to give. And now, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty direct. I'm, I'm like, have a very developed sense of gallows humor. Um, I, I'm not the person that everybody wants during a hard time. You know, some people want somebody who's going to tell them the story of the 11 year old who miraculously beat the unbeatable cancer. And like, that's going to happen to you too. And I'm the person who's like, well, it, yeah, it, you're probably dying. Um, and let's say, you know, do you want to talk about that? Um, so I think sort of to come back, it's like, yeah, grace for myself and then grace for others. And then once again, grace for myself. So I want to get back to this idea that we are all, you know, equally special or equally normal. And also maybe touch on the idea that um, the role that pain plays in growth. Because, you know, towards this, this twist in the book, you say... Once I started paying attention, I realized I wasn't the only sick person my age. And I want to make that a little more universal, if that's okay with you. Because I love the point you make, and I think it's actually much bigger than you think. And I think in this time of coronavirus, this universality of sickness is almost literally true. And it is... Once I started paying attention, I realized how many people in the world were sick. And that it's okay, that what follows from that is not, oh, that's weird, not everyone can be sick. 
but rather, no, our world is sick enough that all these people are sick. Does that make sense to you? Yes. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful observation. Because you make a really, to me, extraordinary connection that clicked once you made it between the judgment that like we as a society have on women in particular when they survive sexual violence, but also in the ways we judge, again, perhaps women in particular, when their bodies are violated in this different way, illness, and that that judgment has to do with, oh, no, things can't be that bad, right? Yeah. I mean, that coming face-to-face with my own internalized misogyny in that moment was really, that was one of those things that I was like, I would prefer to not have to write this in this, right? But it's always the things that we would prefer not to write that I think we, we need to, or that I need to speak only for myself. I mean, so many people are suffering in such acute ways. And what I see happening with the coronavirus is like a loss of innocence on a mass scale. And it's like that thing I said before, where like my loss of innocence was the thing that was the, that was the locus of the most extreme grief. And so I feel like collectively that is the grief that we're experiencing. I I remember when lockdown in New York happened and a friend texted me and was like, how are you doing? And I said, listen, I've been preparing for this for seven years. Like I am uniquely qualified to get through the next two weeks of lockdown, um, which of course now has been six months. And I still feel like having gone through what I went through, I'm pretty resourced to deal with this. Um, And I got COVID and it was super bad. Uh, I stayed out of the hospital, but um, even with that, I just remember thinking like, I know how to do this. I'm just going to lie down. I'm going to lie down for two weeks and drink water and eat one ginger snap a day and get a lawyer to do an advanced directive and talk to my family about what I want to happen, even though they were in denial and they were like, why are you making us do this thing that you don't need for another 70 years? And I was like, cause I might need it. Um, and thought I was going to die from COVID and didn't, but had that same sense of acceptance. I mean, so maybe it was also going into a coma again. Um, you know, but I do feel now like this is such an opportunity for, I mean, it's terrible, of course. And I feel like if we can be awake and we can talk to each other and we can talk about how we're feeling and talk about what we're scared of, then we really have a chance for so many of us to have post-traumatic growth. But the freedom that comes with surrender and acceptance is then you can do something else. You cannot treat the illness, you cannot do anything about the life-threatening um, event unless you acknowledge that it's happening. And I, I don't mean to say then prevent it, by the way, just saying I accept that it is there. Um, Ibram X. Kendi um, talks about cancer as a metaphor in his book, How to, How to Be an Anti-Racist. He diagnoses you know, he diagnoses the United States with metastatic racism. And then he manages to talk about hope. Because he's on this same page that unless you acknowledge that the cancer exists and that, yes, it is quite bad, well, what are you going to do next? And I think we get to return to Allison here. We get to connect Eva and Ibram X. Kendi, which I hope she would appreciate. She would. She helped you learn that hope isn't about imagining a better future. It isn't about an optimistic outlook. Tell me what, what she taught you about hope. So the phrase that I wrote, that it was about how hope lights the heart, which is like just in the present moment. Like the point of hope is to have a different experience in the present moment. And I remember she taught me about hope. She was sitting at her dining room table and we were eating cheeseburgers from Smokehouse. And um, 
she had just gotten the final sort of terminal diagnosis and she was like, well, I have hope. And I was like, I mean, it seemed like this is delusional. And she was just like, the point of hope isn't, isn't about being in denial and thinking it's going to get better. It's just to sit in this moment and think, what would it feel like to have hope for a different experience today or a different experience along the way? And her death was in some ways graceful and in other ways not graceful. And she hung on for a really long time. And she listened to the Beatles and people came and sang Beatles songs with her and gave her pudding with like tons of Oxycontin in it. Uh, which for me, you know, however many years sober I had, I was like, Ooh. Um, but she uh, taught me that, that hope doesn't mean let's just buckle down and get through this terrible thing until the good thing happens, which I think is how a lot of people are maybe taking um, the Black Lives Matter movement and coronavirus is like, well, God, look at this, you know, look at how extreme this is right now. We're just going to, hunker down and wait for it to be, you know, I hope it's over soon. I hope it gets resolved. And it's like, no, hope is just a daily showing up and wearing a mask and educating ourselves, you know, educating myself about racism and the ways in which I'm racist and the ways in which I definitely benefit from white supremacy and the ways in which I want to be really lax with my pods and expand who I see with COVID and say, it's probably fine, you know, and put my aged parents at risk. Um, but she really, I mean, part of what she taught me when I was so sick was like, you could still have pleasure and hope and joy, even if today is the best day that you're ever going to have. And that was so radical for me because I'd been taught that, yeah, if today is garbage, you make it better tomorrow. And if tomorrow looks like it's going to be garbage, well, you hang on, it's going to get better in a week or a month or a year or whatever. Um, and so I think about now and it's like, what's going to bring me hope for today is like resolving this conversation, being nice to my friends, helping my mom out with the thing. You know, it's so basic and it's so simple, but like those things give me hope. Not because they have any later outcome, but just they're sort of inherently hopeful. Eva, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You're, you ask such extraordinary questions. I'm so, so, so happy to be here. And that is it for the show. Almost. The name of Eva's book, again, How to Be Loved, A Memoir of Life-Saving Friendship. And I have a little more I want to say. Inspired by Eva. I want to emphasize the unexpected gift of empathy that this ongoing crisis has generated within me and many of us, perhaps. In the before times, you might have reminded yourself to be gentle with people by saying, you never know what someone's going through. Today, we all know what other people are going through, at least part of it. We are all, to one degree or another, experiencing a level of extended trauma that humans aren't built for and shouldn't have to endure. Some of us are going through more than others, but on some level, none of us are going through less. Every person you talk to today, every person you see, is having to do the impossible. And that includes those who are too selfish or bigoted to believe in other people's trauma. Their trauma is real. We are all doing the impossible every day. I used to talk about my sobriety as the miracle I know about. I've said it on this show before. I feel luckier than normal folks because every night when I go to bed sober, I know I've experienced divine grace in my day. A miracle has occurred in my life, and I know what it is. Most people, I used to say, don't know what their miracle is. They may have dodged an economic bullet or been missed by a bus that was supposed to hit them, but they don't know it. And here's the other gift of these times. 
everyone gets to know what their miracle is. At least one of them. That miracle is today. Their miracle is today. Your miracle is today. My miracle is still today. And no one can take it away. I hope that you find the wonder in that that I do. And please, take care of yourselves. 